The reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 17, beginning at verse 14. And you'll find it on page 984. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed... You can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not offend them, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and for yours. Now we continue this morning um, through this middle part of uh, Matthew's Gospel. We are at uh, the time when Jesus is helping the disciples realise much more clearly exactly who he is and what it is he must do. And this little sort of section breaks into three quite obvious parts. There is, first of all, the healing of the boy with epilepsy who's also described as being under the control of a demon, 14 to 21. And then there's another emphatic sharing of his mission statement, 22 to 23, with a couple of uh, extra insights. And then finally, there's the temple tax and its miraculous means of payment, 24 to 27. Now, the first incident occurs below the Mount of Transfiguration, on the route from Caesarea Philippi, 1613, to Capernaum, 1724. And it may well have been near Mount Miron, on the western side of Hatsor, which was on the main highway 
between those two named places. The second is said to be in the Galilee, which is just a kind of regional term for that northern part of Israel. And the third was when they had arrived at Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee. So first of all, the healing of the epileptic boy and his liberation from the power of evil. So there is now a crowd after Peter, James, John and Jesus had descended from the mountain and a man approaches Jesus with obvious respect. He kneels before him. He calls him Lord, not in any kind of uh, ascription of divinity to Jesus, but just like we might say, sir. And he asks Jesus, who he believes can help his son. He asks for mercy. His son suffers from epileptic seizures. Now, I've only ever once seen that take place before my very eyes. I was 19. I was on my gap year before they were called such things. And I was at a place called Stella Carmel, which is uh, where there is a Franciscan church on the site of Elijah's contest with the prophets of Baal. It was the summer, it was very hot, and some of us Brits had not kind of switched on to the need to drink more water. Some of them were dehydrating. And we were in the cool of the church when one guy in our work party, which was Um, at the hospital in Nazareth, suddenly collapsed on the stone floor with his head uncontrollably jerking in every direction, his arms and legs flailing around. And I must admit, at 19, uh, the thought did come into my mind, is this demon possession? Only for a sec, but it did come into my mind. Fortunately, one of the Franciscan friars who was showing us around was also a medical doctor. He took charge as the seizures were diminishing and he ensured that Timothy was comfortable, taking fluids, and then he was taken off to have a rest. It is alarming to watch as someone is so out of control and is in danger of self-harm on that stone floor. Now in the incident before us, the man's son is said to suffer greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. Now while Jesus, Peter, James and John had been up the mountain, the man, on behalf of his son, had approached the other nine disciples who'd been left behind in this place. But they, the man tells Jesus, could not heal him. Now this is strange because all of the twelve had already been given power and authority by Jesus to heal and to exorcise. You get it in Matthew 10, 1 and verse 8. And they had gone out and done so. Now more recently in Matthew's Gospel, the disciples had throughout Matthew's Uh, chapters uh, 14 and 15, shown a lack of faith. A reminder, their failure here was a reminder that they were not magicians able to do incredible tricks in their own ability, but were only able to do miracles with power derived from Jesus' authority. And it was related to their own ability 
to walk in faith at any particular time. And Jesus appears to be frustrated. For him, the clock is ticking. He knows he must go to Jerusalem. But his disciples are being slow to grasp who he is and what he must do. He says, oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus says. Now, perverse because from Jesus' perspective, not unreasonably, he had already supplied plenty of evidence. But they'd not sufficient faith, not sufficient trust in him to act on it. His miracles were to identify who he was. For example, people are meant to ask questions when certain miracles happen. So who can control nature? In the first service, I made the mistake of saying something about, is it, was it Storm Chiara or somebody or other who's coming across? Imagine if somebody was to say, stop! And then they all laugh because actually the wind just stopped at that particular point, really, which is just coincidence because, as you can see, it's still blowing around out there at various degrees of blowiness. But Jesus calms the storm just in an instant, just like somebody would be, if he, if he had been here today, he would, he would have been able to say, stop the storm, and all the weather charts would go, there's nothing blowing, it's all calm. And that would provoke the question, who can control nature? And then he produces food out of nothing. I mean, who can create out of nothing? Or he can restore somebody who is chronically kind of buckled and twisted from birth in an instant, perfect as they're meant to be. So from Jesus' perspective, the evidence suggests that a supernatural force is at work. And since the outcomes are beneficial, a benevolent force is the one. A benevolent supernatural force is at work. That, for him, is blaringly obvious. But they haven't got their heads around it all yet. Should they not have realised that God was at work amongst them. Well, miracles not only identify who Jesus is, they also illustrate what he has come to do, which is to regain control of a world that has gone seriously adrift, to begin to give little hints of the recreated heaven and earth, as it will be one day, and to restore individual people who have had the image of God in them marred by the fall and by the world that they're born into. You get a, an insight into some of these as God's intention is to restore us to how we were meant to be. They were still learning. <clears throat> this generation refers not only to the nine, but also to all the Jews and the Gentiles who ever had seen and heard Jesus, had seen him do miracles, had heard him give teaching which was naturally authoritative and had that ring of truth about it and the character to back it up as well. And that should have been enough for them to recognise him 
and respond appropriately. Well, then we have these rhetorical questions, which do express, I think, Jesus' personal disappointment. Jesus is aware of his heavenly origins and destiny, but he must put up with their slowness to believe, he calls it. The boy was healed from that moment, or literally from that hour. Now, most of the other physical, um, obviously physical miracles that Jesus did of people who had uh, chronically deformed bodies, that they were healed in an instant, you could see. But someone who's having seizures, you would wait an hour to see whether another one was coming. And that's why they say, from that hour, he's healed physically of seizures, and he is healed somehow spiritually and volitionally of the power of evil over him. I'll come back to that question of demon possession at the end. But in 19 to 21, the disciples, the nine, came to Jesus in private to ask, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus' reply, or the translation says, that they had little faith. Now, you don't need to know any Greek to realise that that is probably not the best translation. Surely means not the smallness of faith, but the poverty of their faith. Because a little faith, he elsewhere says, can be effectual. But a poor or a weak faith is not effectual. The removal of mountains was a proverbial Jewish expression at the time for overcoming great difficulties. It is not meant to be taken literally. Isaiah, for example, as to one or two other prophets in the Old Testament, when they're picturing you know, the restoration of creation as to how it's meant to be, they pick up that idea. Isaiah 44, 40 verse 4 says, Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain made low. That is clearly picture language. A promise in Scripture like this, nothing will be impossible for you, is limited by its context, not by unbelief. So, for example, when Paul is in prison and talks about nothing is impossible for him, he doesn't mean that he's getting out of prison. You know, he's shackled up. He just means that uh, he is able to cope with the situation. That's what he means by that. Here it means that they can do what they have been authorised to do. But they had expected that they were able to do it of their own ability. Not that they were dependent upon the authority of Jesus to do it. They needed true faith in Christ or they couldn't do it. Now what's interesting, there are three commissions in the Gospel. There's the commission to the twelve as to the 70, and there is the Great Commission in Matthew 28 at the end to all the disciples who at that time existed and to us. Now, it is quite interesting to notice that whilst the authority and command to do miracles and exorcism are in the first two, to the 12 and the 70, they are not in the Great Commission. So it's not giant faith that's needed. A small amount will do. But it needs to be true faith. Faith which out of a deep personal trust expects God to work. 
and we must realise what we have been authorised to do and what we haven't been authorised to do. Well, then we have uh, 22 and 23. It's another prediction of what Jesus must do. Travelling in the Galilee, Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. It's a repeat of what he has said before, quite emphatically, but there are two differences. The first is that... uh, Um, in this mission, in this version of his mission statement, he uh, introduces the fact that Jesus will be betrayed. Now, the word betrayed has a weak meaning, which means to hand over, or a strong meaning, which means to betray, which it is depends on the context. Here, though, the ambiguity may well be deliberate, because is it God or Judas who hands Jesus over. Who's in charge? Or is it simply that Judas betrays Jesus? Grief is the other new feature recorded here. It would seem to indicate that whereas before, Peter who said, no, never, never, not going to happen, about having a Messiah who suffers... Is it that they are now beginning to grasp that Jesus is on his way to his death? But as for his resurrection, they don't compute. It was beyond their comprehension, and understandably so. They had seen Jesus raise people from the dead, but they're just people who came back to the same life that they led. The idea that somebody could die and then return with a glorified body like the one three of them had just seen at the top of Mount Transfiguration, and live forever. Well, that was beyond their thinking at that particular point. And then in these verses 24 to 27, we have the temple tax. And the fee for the two of them is in a fish's mouth. Well, they arrive at Capernaum. The collectors of the two drachma tax come to Peter and ask, does your teacher, your rabbi, pay the temple tax? Now, this was a tax that was um, laid down in the Old Testament and uh, all male Jews between 20 and 50 had to pay uh, two drachma each, each year, for the services of the temple down in Jerusalem. And Peter says, yes, he does. Now, Jesus uses the occasion to do some personal tutoring. And the question from Jesus to Peter is this. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? Well, from others, Peter replied. Well, then, Jesus says, then the sons are exempt. You see, this is a religious tax, not a civil tax that was due to the Roman authorities. And Jesus' point is that just as sons of royalty don't pay tax to their father, the king, so too Jesus, God's unique son, is not obligated to pay his father the tax for his temple. However, until he has completed his mission and fulfilled all those ceremonial and ritual laws of the Old Testament, which were merely illustrative of the sacrifice Jesus would have to pay in order for our sins to be atoned, 
he is still obligated to pay the temple tax as a human being. When, of course, Jesus has won salvation by grace through what he has done, all those Old Testament rituals and ceremonials are fulfilled. They are defunct. And as if to show he is uh, operating under the old law, he pays it. But to illustrate it, that, only, that uh, one can only meet our obligations to God by God's grace, they are told to go fishing. And they catch a fish with the admission fee for Peter and Jesus in its mouth. That is probably the most bizarre miracle recorded in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Well, just as a little kind of excursus, what do we make of demonic influence? We're all naturally unfamiliar with all of this, so what are we to make of it? Well, four things. Do we think it is just mythological language and we seek to demythologize it? Do we ascribe such descriptions of bizarre behavior as really ignorant superstition? That they, they have a worldview and they have categories from their world, but it's not our world and we think we know better. Is it just curing somebody of epilepsy, a miracle? But do they kind of explain it within a first century context which had possessions of demons and things uh, which we might be tempted to say are superstitious mythology? Well, I think not. There is a demonic reality. Between creation, where all was good, Genesis 1, and the fall, Genesis 3, some of the angelic beings rebelled against God. 2 Peter and Jude are our sources for that. So 2 Peter 2, 4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment... And Jude 6, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. And their leader is variously called Satan, the devil, Beelzebub, ruler of this world, prince of the power of the air, the evil one. And Jesus, particularly at times of temptation, regarded him for real. And I think we have to regard him for real too. So there is a reality behind all of this. Second, do we equate demonic influence with mental illness? Well, absolutely not, because they don't in the Gospels. So, for example, on the one hand, you have, um, on one occasion, they bring to Jesus a person who is unable to speak. On another occasion one both unable to speak and blind. And on both occasions, they do ascribe this inability to speak as having a demonic influence. And yet they clearly did, didn't consider that all people with the inability to speak as having a demonic root for what they were suffering from. Because in Mark 8, there's another person who is both unable to hear as well as unable to speak but his disability is never traced to the demonic. Uh, 
Our understanding of human nature is that a person is a psychosomatic being made up of physical, social, spiritual dimensions. So if a person presents with bizarre behaviour, it may be caused as a result of one or other or all or a combination of these factors. What I think we're seeing here is someone whose uncontrolled behaviour may be caused by physical factors and who can also be said, like all of us, in our default state, the state that we're born in, to be born into the dominion of the devil, that we are under his influence, even if we don't display any bizarre behaviour as a consequence. Trapped, we all are, by nature, in his domain, and we need to be liberated from it. The instant restoration uh, to normality, in this case, is a miracle. And it is to identify Jesus as God and illustrating that he has come to liberate from the imprisonment to evil. Well, are we meant to see events like this today? Bizarre behaviour such as this may well take place and its cause could be physical, social or spiritual or any combination. But this kind of overt public spiritual battle between the forces of light and darkness, I think we are unlikely to see today. And let me explain why. Ever since the fall, we've been kept in the dark, trapped in an alien environment. We need illumination so we can see and understand, and we need liberation so we can enjoy a normal life in all its fullness. Interestingly, there's no example of this public liberation in the Old Testament. It's as if rebellious human beings had to wait for someone to arrive on the scene who was able to do it. It's also interesting that there are only a couple of such incidents in the Acts of the Apostles, just as there are fewer incidences of other such miracles. I think it's something like 34 occasions in which Jesus does miraculous things, sometimes to an individual, sometimes to a very large but unspecified number compared to the ten occasions when the apostles do in the Acts. So I think it would be fair to conclude that just as the divine forces come to the fore overtly in the life of Jesus, so too in response the uh, demonic forces come out overtly in the public domain to counter him. In these encounters, we are seeing demonstrated what normally takes place unseen, covertly, but nonetheless real in an unseen world. So what would we do in certain scenarios today? So if someone falls at your feet in convulsions, what should you do? The answer would be to carry out appropriate first aid, make sure they can't hurt themselves, make sure their tongue doesn't block their airways and call an ambulance. They are likely to be having some kind of seizure, some kind of fit. Or another scenario, what if someone comes to you to, to, to talk but wonders whether you're being bugged by MI5 or GCHQ 
and ask whether, you, whether you've noticed people following them and whether those new people who've joined our church, are they government agents? Well, they are in need of some psychiatric help, so put them in touch with the appropriate nursing and medical facilities. Appropriate medication may well relieve them of this kind of uh, episode of paranoia and help them back to normality. But what if someone wants to come into the light of Christ but they are also drawn to the dark side of life with which they're more familiar? Can we do anything? Well, the answer is yes, because the biblical remedy is repentance and faith. That is how Paul in Colossians 1.13 tells us we can be liberated or delivered. He writes, For he, that's God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So miracles like this one illustrate that we, by default, are born into a world where the prince of this world has trapped us. It's blinded our eyes. We can't see. We can't liberate ourselves. And he, this miracle is to identify who it is that can liberate us. It was done in the public domain to show that Jesus was that liberator. Today we're redeemed from that domain by the Son, Jesus. And we access that liberation by asking for the forgiveness of our sins. So, you see, we're all born into the dominion or the rule of darkness. But once redeemed by Christ, once freed from it, we can, by sharing the gospel of redemption, show how Christ can free others from it too. Once trapped, but now set free. Let's turn to pray as we close. And let me read what the Apostle Peter wrote later in life from his, sec- from his first letter, chapter 2, verse 9, about us who've made that uh, transition from one domain to another, who have shifted our allegiance to a dark, unclear, fuzzy world that has... Uh, confused us and trapped us to one which is clear in Christ. He says of us, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy we thank you heavenly father for um, seeing this reality we see that in uh, Jesus where the forces of uh, the divine and the good are to the fore we see the forces of evil to the fore activity which is 
usually beyond our sight, but is still nonetheless real. And we pray that we might be aware of this, that it might form our Christian worldview, and that we, through the gospel, might be able to liberate people from darkness and confusion and sin to clarity, to liberation, to living as we're meant to live through the merits of Jesus Christ's death on the cross and for our humility to acknowledge him and to ask for forgiveness and the transformation that ensues. Amen.